What you need from a dev environment is similar to what you need from Kubernetes. Trying to make all those things work well in dev so it, you really can just at a flick of a button move a service from local to a remote cluster when you're a little bit overloaded. We have a bunch of ideas around that and like how to make that easier, how to make that more seamless so you don't have to really care as much anymore. You are listening to the Kubelist Podcast a show interviewing project maintainers for CNCF Sandbox, incubating and graduated projects. We'll discuss each project to understand where it came from and discuss the roadmap and plans to continue the project. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. Together with Benji DeGroot, we publish the Kubelist weekly newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, Puppet, Sneak, Harness, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at replicated.com. Benji is the co-founder and CEO at Shipyard, where they enable software teams of all sizes to build, test, and deploy faster and more reliably via their ephemeral environment management platform. Get started with ephemeral environments at shipyard.build. The Kubeless podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Finally, sign up for the Kubelist weekly newsletter and read previous issues at kubelist.com. Welcome to today's episode of the Kubelist podcast. We have a great guest with us today, Nick Santo, CEO of Tilt. Nick is an engineer who decided to create Tilt because, well, I think we'll dig into that, but I think he just felt sorry for us trying to use Kubernetes as a development environment and buried under the weight of the tools. Like, we'll give him an opportunity to explain the motivation behind Tilt, though. But as first, as always, Benji's here today. Welcome, Benji. Hello, Mark. So we re-recorded our intro to the podcast for this episode um, to talk a little bit more about Shipyard and the work you're doing there. Um, We're going to have to definitely dig in and spend a little bit more time talking about Shipyard at some point, because like what, ephemeral environments, like you want to give a quick intro? I mean, ephemeral environments are the future, or actually the past that we're finally catching up to the rest of us. But yeah, no, we'll we'll dive into that in a a future episode, but uh, very... Very excited to uh, get into the intro. Awesome. Great. All right, Nick, welcome. Hey, Mark. Hey, Benji. So really excited to talk about Tilt and, and your background. So to get us started, would you mind just kind of telling us about your background, your career, and what led you to creating Tilt? Uh, sure. It's, it's been kind of a windy path. Uh, my background is actually as a front-end engineer. I started out on you know, pretty early on doing a lot of UI work. Uh, I worked on Google Sheets for a long time. And one of the things that we ran into when we were building Sheets was just complicated JavaScript apps were really a pain to develop at the time. Uh, and so I also ended up as, you know, while I was doing the UI stuff, I drifted more towards the tooling side. How do we get the build system to support JavaScript better? Uh, how do we get engineers to work together on a big shared JavaScript code base. I ended up building a lot of like type checking compilers, that sort of thing, to kind of help people be more productive. After I worked at Google, I went to Medium early on as a blogging platform to really to work on writing tools. And you know, I worked on writing tools as a while for a while as a UI engineer. And and after a while as more people joined and and the system got more complicated, we started seeing a lot of the same problems around kind of developer productivity. 
Medium had kind of different build system problems, but it was a bunch of microservice apps that had went to run Medium locally. You had to kind of run a Node.js app. You sometimes ran some Go services. You sometimes ran like a fake database. You sometimes ran some message queues. And uh, I had spent some time when I was there, like investigating uh, how can we make this experience better and kind of looking at like what different build systems could do for us. I did kind of investigate like Buck and Basil and uh, Pants was big at the time. And I even looked at Gradle. And what I kind of felt at this time is that a lot of these build systems were kind of, you know, were great pieces of tech. Uh, they're like very complicated, uh, big building a graph of your build logic and, and figuring out the right way to build artifacts. But like weren't really solving the problems that I thought we should be solving for microservices, that it was really more about like, okay, how do we bring the services up? When should we restart services? Like, how do I know which services are misbehaving if my dev environment is going wonky or something is not working? How do I hot reload things? Those are kind of all problems that build systems didn't really see in their domain. So after I left Medium, I kind of said to myself, I, I kind of knew a bunch of build systems people from my past, uh, including my co-founder. And we kind of said, you know, we're just going to start this as kind of a research project. We kind of know that, like, with microservice apps and dev environments becoming composed of many services, could we create a build system that recognized that and uh, kind of acknowledged that? And we did a bunch of experiments. Tilt is, uh, I think, Mark and I, I think I met you and Benji both around this time when we were still very experimental and we still had, like, a lot of prototypes and Tilt was kind of the last in a long line of build system experiments around microservices. So when you first sat down to get started on on this build system, what were kind of the main initial goals for the R&D project that you were were trying to hit there? Like, What was the main pain that you guys were starting to, to focus on? I think we kind of talked to a lot of people and we kind of saw everyone trying to figure out how to bring up multiple services in dev. But we weren't really sure what the shape of a solution would look like. I think the first thing we really tried was like some sort of remote build system where all your services were running in a Kubernetes cluster and uh, you would uh, only build the services that you needed to rebuild. But if you didn't need to rebuild it, the, the build system kind of would kind of leave the service running. We had kind of worked on some sort of like, we said maybe, maybe the real thing. Uh, to start is testing. Like maybe you need a remote test environment and to a kind of a interactive uh, testing system that like let you run the tests in the right order for the services you are working on right now. But we weren't really sure. It was a lot of different experiments. Um, what I think we ended up with Tilt in particular is we kind of felt like we had spent a lot of time with remote dev environments and felt that it was going to be too hard to make that the starting point in like how you try it and how you like get it working. And so kind of went back and said, well, kids, it's, we think containers are the future and we think Kubernetes in the future and Kubernetes like as a, as a big like abstract category of like how services talk to each other in a production environment. So we said, okay, what if we could take some of these ideas and make them really easy to create a dev environment locally on top of containers and Kubernetes and could we get that to work? And that's the experiment that like people really just seem to love. And so we just said, oh yeah, this is this is probably what we should be working on. So what what year are we at right now? Like when 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 was this? 
I think we started, we started kind of doing this as a research project around 2000, early 2017. Uh, and then I think we launched Tilt, oh boy, end of 2018, or maybe early 2019. So it was like a pretty long kind of experimentation process in there. Yeah. I, I remember like a quick story you mentioned, you know, like doing customer research validation, understanding like where, where to dig in. Your co-founder Dan was out at our office and you know, we were struggling at the time with like how to get a decent dev environment. The complexity of our stack had grown, like developer productivity was impacted. And, and I, there was like a day, I remember this Dan walking around and like, like just like looking over the shoulder of an engineer and you could just see like his jaw dropping, like, wow, that's what you're doing? Like, no, there has to be a better solution here. And, and I mean, I'm sure you did that to a lot of different folks to get research and understand, you know, where are the pain points that we can actually solve? Uh, one of my favorite stories is very early on, uh, we just had a bunch of like kind of random experiments and prototypes that we wanted. To, we wanted to get feedback on people. So like we just, I think GopherCon New York um, uh, or Gotham Go uh, was going on. So we're like, oh, this is this is great. Let's what we do is we just bought a booth at uh, Gotham Go and we went to Twenty Third Street and got some like medical supply equipment so we could dress up like scientists and put a huge like science fair poster board thing like with all of what we were doing and just like kind of grab people at you know got them go and showed them what we were doing and kind of got their feedback on it and it was i i love that kind of the, the mad scientist approach to product development of just like let's build something and ship, put it in front of people and see what they do with it and it, then if it doesn't work you can also just be like yeah we're a mad scientist it doesn't it, <laughs> it's, it's gonna blow up most of the time that's fine the bad scientist excuses is one of the best excuses. So you're doing all this R&D, you're doing all this research, you guys kind of get to a problem that interests you, a problem that is, is a real problem for everybody else. Was that the moment that you guys were like, we're going to do this as open source? Or was there an earlier inflection point? Or is that later on in the story? Like, How did open source become an avenue for the project that you're working on? That's a really good question. So when we started, it was not at all open source. A lot of what we were when we were doing kind of in the, like the more of like remote build system, like interactive CI days, we were like, oh, we don't, it's probably going to throw away. We don't want anyone to depend on this. Let's do this in a private repo. Once we started doing Tilt, I think I definitely come from a tradition of when you have stuff running on your own machine, it's much more important that that be open source as, as kind of an exercise in both trust building and also as an exercise of like, if it's misbehaving, you want to be able to dig in and understand, like, how is this interacting badly with my machine? Just client software in general, I think, is easier uh, open source because you're you're deploying to an environment you don't really control, uh, and so have the, the ability of the person who actually who actually does control that environment uh, to be able to kind of dig into it, and understand why this is breaking on their system, uh, was really important to us. And also, I think there's just like a cultural tradition from since you know since maybe the late 80s, early 90s of just build tools being more open source and being more like free for people to use. Uh, so we're like, yeah, most people are going to expect build tools to be open source anyway. Uh, anything that you want to run on your local machine should probably be open source. Let's just make this open source. Uh, so when we started Tilt, it was open source, so a lot of the other experiments were not. So obviously, like it becomes a little bit table stakes, right? You want to ship something run in a different environment, it needs to be open source, just so somebody can look at it, make sure it's not doing anything they don't want. If they don't trust your build process, they can grab the code, look at it, they can build their own binary, they can do whatever they want to do. But you ended up building like a company around Tilt and like actually working to to monetize open source project. Did you 
was that part of the initial plan and or was there a lot of like trying to like juggle and figure out what belongs in the open source part what belongs in like the commercial product that we're building my answer to this maybe is an unsatisfying answer but like i think we had talked early on we were still in the research phase we had kind of talked to vcs and we told them, oh, we have this plan to monetize this. And they just kind of laughed at us. Uh, most of the ones are like the DevTools VCs. It's kind of like, yeah, that's the first thing you need to do is get traction. And the second thing you need to do, like, you're, you should think, don't think about monetization yet. Because if you're experimenting a lot and you're also trying to, like, build something valuable and also trying to think about how to monetize it, it's, it's going to be too distracting. It's not going to work. And I think that was generally true of this sort of kind of research. Like if maybe if I had started, if we had started with like a, a very clear and product idea, like I, I think a, a path that I think you see is increasingly common is like you build some product inside a big company that gets a lot of traction and then you're like, oh, let's build an open source version for the market. And we have like a pretty good theory of like, this is going to have traction and we know how to monetize it. Where in our case, we are like, we don't even know what the product is going to be. We don't even know what parts people are going to want to pay for or not. So we we just didn't even think that hard about that at this at the early stages. I'm not sure if we even really found a sustainable uh, monetization strategy for this open source project yet. Though we can we can talk about monetization of open source too if you really want. But I'm not going to say I'm an expert on it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tricky. Um, but like when we talk about you were talking about like that traction, you know, separate from monetization and building a commercial business around it. So you started off as like an experiment, the science experiment, watching what people do, like throwing ideas out there. Was there like, can you talk about that moment when you, you just realized like, we have a solution to a problem here. There is initial traction. Like let's stop searching and let's start building more on this one topic that we have. I think there were in the early, uh, Days. The company is called Windmill Engineering, by the way. Even the product is called Tilt. So if you hear me say those words, that's what they mean. In the early days of Windmill, there were two, I think it was mainly there were two blog posts that kind of went viral. There was one blog post that I literally wrote in a couple of hours in an afternoon. And it was basically reasons I kind of disliked Basil. And it was kind of like in a, in a good, like, elbowy, like, jokey way. I, I, I like the Basil people and I have a lot of respect for them. But it was like, yeah, these are all the problems I have with Basil and why I don't think this is a good entry point for like a microservice build system. And, and that went viral and people people had lots of comments on it. So I got a lot of feedback on that. I was like, okay, this that seems like a message that resonates with people, that these tools aren't really fitting what they need. And then I think we had an early blog post that was just I, I forget what it was called. It was local Kubernetes development. We had a blog post that did somewhat well. We had one that was like explaining all the ways that local Kubernetes development really sucked. And I think it might have been that the, Dan Miller wrote it, but that just got massive amounts of traffic and massive amounts of comments from, you know, Hacker News and, and kind of the various like commenting platforms. And just going through and reading those comments, it just really, really understanding, okay, like when you kind of read those comments, I, I always like take them with like a grain of salt. Like I don't necessarily treat all of them as like truth at face value. But I think when you kind of get a big response to a post or you, you kind of hear what people are saying with it, you kind of know like, okay, there's something here. Maybe we don't all agree on what it is, but like the problem space is interesting and the problem space is something that resonates with people. So, so really part of it was like, hey, um, we're working all this stuff, put stuff out into the world. 
And maybe we haven't figured out the answer to the problem, but you kind of had this this feeling that people are thinking about this and maybe they're not telling us exactly what they're thinking, but that's kind of how you got to this product market fit, if you will, for, uh, for Tilt itself. One quick question for the rest of us, what is Bazel? Uh, I know you come from Google, so it's pretty ubiquitous there, but tell us about Bazel and, and what is that? Because I think that's interesting because you have some history there. Oh boy, I'm, I'm see if I can explain Basil. Every once in a while, the Basil people complain to me about this blog post. But the idea at Google was to have this big, uh, this kind of cross-language build system where for every uh, every target, you have to define the inputs and you have to define the outputs. And the idea is that if you express your build process in that way, it no longer matters if the build process runs on your local machine or if it runs in the cloud somewhere. That like, because you've completely defined the inputs and outputs, this is actually a, a, it is really good at like distributing and parallelizing your build process in a way that you can't necessarily do with make. Bazel was, came out of a system that was originally a bunch of like make file generation scripts at Google very early on and like over time became more and more solidified into uh, we're going to build a directive graph of all your sources and all your outputs and figure out how to build things in the right order and figure out how to not build things when things aren't out of date. So Bazel was originally called Blaze inside of Google, like an open source at Bazel, but there were also in between that time between when Google built it and when Google open sourced it. There were a lot of clones that other companies had started to be kind of built internally from kind of Bucket Facebook for Pants, which was a kind of a Twitter and Foursquare collaboration uh, and some other companies. Though I think Bazel seems to be becoming more popular in the last couple of years for, for companies that uh, that need a multi-language build system where you have a lot of dependencies between different languages that can't be expressed in the language's native build system. I think for projects where it's usually like the I think Kubernetes tried to use Bazel for a while and found that just the Go build system was kind of good enough for what they needed. There's a whole I think there's a whole discussion about Bazel's history with Kubernetes, which is a is a separate thing. That story sounds like a, a like I'm drawing parallels to Google had Borg and Facebook and Twitter and Square. They all had their own container orchestration systems and then Borg is rewritten as Kubernetes as this open source thing. It sounds like sounds like a playbook there that's working. Maybe. <laughs> cool. So that helps understand, you know, what Basil is. We probably should have started with this. Like, what's Tilt? Oh, what is Tilt? So Tilt, we've been calling it like your dev environment as code. People use it in a lot of different configurations. It has a bunch of, uh, uh, the, the main way we see teams using it is that like, you have a bunch of services that normally run in Kubernetes and you want to be able to run them all together in dev. Well, what you should do is you should set up, say, a kind cluster or a, a Docker desktop cluster locally and use Tilt to kind of orchestrate the build and deploy and the the visibility into what you're running. That is, so you tell Tilt, this is where my Docker files live, this is where my Kubernetes manifest lives. Uh, Tilt will figure out like the right dependency order of things and then every time you make a change, Tilt will try to bring the dev environment up to date. We have a lot of tools that like say, hey, like if a JavaScript file changed, you can actually just hotly reload that into the container directly. If say your dependencies change, well, we're just gonna rebuild the container from scratch and redeploy it. And giving you visibility into how long that 
deploy is taking, uh, and when the service comes up, you can kind of interact with it, giving you kind of visibility to how how the service is behaving and how it's talking to other services. So is the the value of that really when the stack gets to be like so complicated that there's so many microservices, Kubernetes is complex, like you have all this and you end up with like developers really spending more time fighting the the environment or trying to find out like something's not working, which pod do I look at? What's the current name of this? Like like that that's where tilt really starts to shine. Yeah, I would say I think we originally thought, hey, this actually the the reason we thought this wouldn't work, and when we were in the experiment phase, we were like, oh, maybe the only people who will want this is people with like a hundred services. There is an old thing that Alex Klemmer says. If you've ever met Alex, um, who's like he's Kubernetes competes with Bash. That like if you had a Bash script before, Kubernetes is like your replacement for that Bash script. And I actually kind of feel that way about dev environments that if you even we have some teams who use Tilt where like even if they're you know only running like three or four services locally but you know you don't maybe you don't want to have to write a bash script to like wire that all together and bring all those services up and like you have to write a bash script that like monitors hey did the service go down uh, well you have to restart it or if it's go down you have to like surface that somewhere those are all the things that kind of Tilt tries to accomplish for you so that even if you only have like three or four services, it's still good to know like which services are healthy and which services need to be rebuilt. You talked earlier about, you know, it was one step too far maybe initially to say like, let's take the dev environment off of your laptop and move it into like a remote server or remote cluster. Is that still really the belief of Tilt where it's like, no, get Docker desktop, get Kind, get whatever that is, run it all locally? So... There's kind of a, there's it's always a trick to like figure out where the puck is now versus where the puck is going. And I pretty strongly believe that your local laptop will always be some part of your dev environment, that there probably should be some things running locally. I'm not a person who believes that the future is IDEs in the browser for everyone. I think IDEs in the browser will work for some people, but I think there will always be some way you find a local laptop and local file system in the loop here. Where I think Tilt fits in is less as an opinion of you should run everything locally or you should run everything remotely of like, okay, your laptop is a a node in a distributed system. And what Tilt is trying to help make possible is that it doesn't actually matter anymore if things are running locally or if things are running remotely. And maybe to start, everything's running locally. Maybe to start, your have a kind cluster running all your, you know, running your dozen services locally. But as your as your service becomes more complicated, rather than having to rewrite your entire app to run remotely, you can just say, actually, Kubernetes actually gives me really good primitives already for moving services from one node to another. So now I can just move things from my local laptop node to a node on a remote cluster or to a shared dev space or to uh, either a per-user dev, uh, namespace in a Kubernetes cluster or to like a shared Kubernetes cluster that we're using to host common services, that sort of thing. And so like trying to blur the lines between what is local and what is remote. That, that makes sense. There's like, you know, common services stacks outgrow laptops eventually, but like you don't want to make the compromise. Like I, I but for the record, I totally agree with you. Like there's value in running services for every developer in the cloud, but I don't want to open up Chrome and have like a web browser-based IDE because there's just like little trade-offs that like kind of gnaw at you throughout the day when you're doing it that don't work as well as when you had a full IDE on your laptop. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and say two things. One is uh, I I think that Sunblade systems or whatever they were called probably aren't necessarily the future. I think we tried this 
multiple times where we have terminals <laughs> and <laughs> where we have terminals and then we have these big servers that we log into. Um, I do think a hybrid solution that Nick is talking about makes sense to me. But the other thing and an argument that I always make is if I'm on a plane and I'm going to KubeCon in Valencia, I got eight hours. That eight hours is the best eight hours I get ever to do any type of development. So, you know, like I like being able to to, to run as much stuff as possible on my computer. But then at the same time, you know, sometimes that's not, that's not feasible. So I just want to go on the record as saying, I completely agree with you, Nick. I think that a hybrid solution is there. IDE in the web or not, like I'm agnostic to that. Like I don't know what the answer is. I, if I feel like if I say anything other than Vim is the only way, I might get in trouble with my co-founder. So I'll, I'll be careful there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe we should get a little technical on, on how Tilt does some of the stuff you're talking about. So I guess let me give you a scenario and, and you tell me how Tilt could help me. Um, I've got, uh, got a little company. It's called Airbnb. It's my company. I don't know if you guys heard about it. It's called Airbnb. And I've got 150 microservices that are running at any given time. Um, I want to do local development. How could Tilt help me as just a local uh, you know, developer like what's the give me like a pragmatic version of that and maybe we'll dive into technically how it does it as well. Let me see if I can repeat that back to you. You have like a hundred services that you need to run to kind of just to create a dev environment, just to like just to see the app working, so to speak. Is that kind of what the, the scenario you're describing? Yeah, I think that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, whenever I kind of talk to a company, we till I still believe we're like very like user research focused. We spend a lot of time just like talking to platform teams at companies and like from very small companies to like much bigger companies who are like struggling with these problems and like understanding what is the right solution for them. And I usually tell people like, hey, if, if you have a, a hundred services that can all fit on your laptop, like that's the place to start. Very early on, we were like, Everything should be containerized. Everything should be running in Kubernetes. And uh, there were a lot of teams we found just having a lot of trouble with just like, oh, now we have to containerize everything uh, before we use Tilt. Like, what about this one server? Like, what about this Webpack server that I really want to run locally? And so we said, okay, well, maybe the solution here is like you have some host processes running locally and some processes running in a cluster and some processes running in a local cluster and some processes running in a remote cluster. So I spent a lot of time working with teams, like trying to figure out like, what is the right configuration with them based on their what their bottlenecks are, whether their bottlenecks are like how much CPU these services take versus what kind of data needs these services take? Do they need to access like a shared repository of test data somewhere? Um, all of those things and trying to figure out, okay, based on like the space of like constraints you have, these services should be running on the host OS, these services should be running containers, in Docker desktop or whatever, these services should be running uh, remotely, and here's how Tilt will set up a proxy to those remote services for you. That's usually the kind of decision space I move through with people, and it tends to get very specific about like what their actual services look like. So if I'm like new to Tilt and I have this problem, developers have various different types of configs. It's kind of like the wild, wild west among the different engineers on the team. But we're at, we are deploying to Kubernetes, so you know at least a chunk of our services are containerized. I might be relying on infrastructure as a service for databases and queuing and stuff like this. Do you have like like a, a happy path? Like if you if you were to work with a customer like that, you know, fictitious Airbnb example from Benji, like how do you recommend they actually tackle that problem if it's like, intimidating to bring everything in initially? 
I mean, what I usually say to people is, like, we try to provide tools, which is, we don't want you to, like, change how you run services for Tilt, necessarily. You have some way of running all your services now. We want to try to figure out how you define them in kind of Tilt's, like, if you want to call it a build system or if you want to call it, like, a dev orchestrator, I think some people call it, like, whatever scripts you have, whatever Docker files you have, whatever Kubernetes manifest you have, let's let's figure out how to use that. Let's get everything up and running. And then once that is up and running, let's figure out, okay, what's slow? Like, maybe, you know, building this particular container image is slow, and so we want to add a live update rule to, like, so we can hot reload that container instead of rebuilding every time. Maybe maybe something else is slow, and downloading something something is slow, so let's optimize that part or parallelize that part. I, I'm a big fan of, like, in the, the realm of software development, let's, let's get something working as soon as possible and seeing if you like it and seeing if this is kind of the right paradigm for managing your services and then trying to figure out how to optimize from there. Um, what's what's that old saying that like all complicated services evolve from very simple services or like you can't have a, a working complicated service that evolved from a non-working simple service? I mean, it's true. And like, you know, to the point you made also, you know, seeing something written on a piece of paper or, you know, Google Doc or something like this, like you can kind of understand how it's going to work. But wow, as soon as you get your hands on an early version of it and you're playing with it, you start to really realize the, the where the challenges are, where like the compelling parts are that you just like that you start leaning on and, and relying on more and more. So like, yeah, like getting it in hands early is great. I mean, I think one of the geniuses of Docker, uh, and I remember a lot of people being very dismissive of Docker files very early. A lot of build, build systems people are very dismissive of Docker files very early on because you just you just take a base image, you just add all your source files, and you just run some shell commands, and you get a Docker image. And I was, I kind of said, "Boom, oh, that's brilliant! Like, optimize it later. Let's get it working. Let's go." And and not thinking too hard about trying to do things uh, the optimal way from the start. So how do you manage that in, in Tilt? Like if, you know, my, my dev environment does not match my production environment exactly. Like it's a lofty goal that I want it to match as closely as possible to reduce bugs, right? But there's config changes. There's like service changes. How do I declaratively, hopefully, maybe imperatively describe what those changes are that are different? I think the answer to this kind of depends a lot on the team. So I'll tell you what, what I do. I'm a huge fan of Helm. I think Helm is brilliant. And usually when I'm like moving on to a Kubernetes project and I want to figure out like how to run it locally or how to run it at all, I my first thing I do is like put it all in a helm chart, like define variables for the things that I want to change and then go through and like make those variables injectable. I think some people are big fans of customized. It's a little bit easier to get started with, even if it's a little bit less structured. I think um, some people literally just with tilt, they start tilt, just put some like set expressions in or some shell scripts to just like replace the parts of the Kubernetes manifest to make it more dev friendly. I think those are all fine. I think mainly the thing I try to do is just like get something kind of deployed to a cluster. Like when you have things, can you run things? Maybe I'll, I'll push the question back on you, Mark. And this is what I always do is like, can you bring up a new environment? Can you bring up your Kubernetes manifest in like some staging environment or some local Docker desktop? Or is it just like you kind of pray that when you deploy it, a prod, it will work? That's one area like we, we it's, it's a challenge, right? Like the stack grows and like you have it working locally. And then I think you hit these like, 
these thresholds. And I'm sure that this is something that you see, right? Like maybe I'm, I start off and like I have a really easy POC and I like I'm deploying a Next.js front end of Vercel and I have like a, a Heroku back end or something like this. I don't need the complexity of Kubernetes. But then I start to like, you know, bring in additional services, different back ends, microservices. And then I can like, okay, great. Maybe Docker Compose file works or, you know, like, a relatively simple Kubernetes. And then you end up with kind of going down this fork. You described, you know, Helm being one option, customize being another option. And it just like the complexity becomes like more and more and more. And, you know, eventually you're ordering the latest M1X laptops with 64 gigs of RAM for every, every developer, just praying that like, you know, Apple will advance the hardware faster than your stack continues to like grow and use that hardware. Well, let's not forget worrying about ARM builds versus I86 with that as well. I also have to state here, just for our audience, Mark is clearly in the customized camp. I am I'm in the Helm camp. I like both. I think we both like both, but I, I just wanted the record to state that because I, I know that <laughs> I, I know how big a fan Mark is of customized. I'm gonna interject and say that I think Docker Compose is very powerful for local development. We all know I'm very biased about that. But one thing that I'm pushing personally is I do think that we have too many YAML files in all of our repositories. And I think that one of the things that's maybe holding some adoption back is that it's a little overwhelming with all the different options that we have. So over at Shipyard, we always try and be a little prescriptive there. But more importantly, um, I think that it is, it's an open question. It's like, what is the right answer for config management? Um, there are some options out there. I think uh, uh, Starlark, is that something that is on your radar, Nick, or anything to that effect? Well, actually, I want to I wanna push back on you there, Benji. Uh, so I, this is my big bugaboo. And I actually, I really do like Docker and Post. I really do like Kubernetes. But one of the brilliant things about Kubernetes is its object model, that the way it manages objects and the way it manages objects as separate things that have a spec, which is the, the desired state, and a status, which is like the, the actual state, and that that is consistent throughout the system, and that you can add new types of objects, and that you can uh, all objects are kind of interactable in the same way, and the objects are separable. I used to work with uh, with uh, V Corbs, who used to say that like what's what's nice about Kubernetes is that like if you've ever like like the English language, where you can kind of compare, you have a bunch of words, and you can combine them in interesting ways. Uh, and you can kind of make new expressions by combining the words in, in ways that you couldn't before, but you you can separate things out a lot. And uh, I think that way of handling objects is gonna, just going to be like just like for the future, like that is how we're going to handle infrastructure objects. It's clearly the way things should be done. Uh, it's actually very simple. I think Kubernetes. If, if there's any complexity in Kubernetes, I think it's that pods as a base primitive are pretty complicated, and some of the actual objects are complicated, probably more complicated than they need to be, and then I think that kind of scares people off. Uh, and I think in the future, what is what I would like to see happen is kind of deploy systems that kind of use the same way that Kubernetes does for like creating objects and manipulating in the in the in the system and like being able to have them work together uh, but are much more simpler objects versus the Docker Compose way of the world which I actually think Docker Compose in some ways is more complicated because you start with one file that defines the entire dev environment and then you kind of provide overlays on top of it. And it becomes, it kind of starts, 
easier, but becomes more complicated as your system becomes more complicated, rather than the Kubernetes way of like, as a system more complicated, you can like, it's a little bit easier to swap things out. It's a little bit easier to like, treat them as separate objects. Does that, does that kind of, I'm slightly trolling you here, Benji, <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious what you think about that argument. No, I, I think I think it's a really I think it's a really good point, and I think that the real answer to all of this is, is that we're still kind of early in this world. So yeah, we're going to see what ends up uh, kind of winning out. Um, I think I think I will go on a limb here and say uh, Kubernetes is is probably the orchestrator of uh, <laughs> of at least now and probably the indefinite future, and I think we're all fans of it. So switching gears a little bit, let's talk about uh, you know. Well, let's talk about your roadmap. What's next for Tilt? So I want to think about this in kind of two pieces. One piece is uh, Tilt as a platform, and the other piece is like Tilt as a set of features. And I think that will kind of bridge what we were just talking about. But like, what you need from a dev environment is similar to what you need from Kubernetes. You kind of need a, a consistent API to build on and a... a a consistent way to like interact with objects in your dev environment in, a, in the way, a similar way that like the, to me, the genius of Kubernetes is that gives you a consistent way to interact with all the objects in your prod environment uh, to define those objects to kind of react to things happening into them. One of the things we've really done over the past year in Tilt, uh, maybe about a year and a half, is when we started building Tilt, we kind of assumed that it would look a lot like Bazel. We assumed it would be a graph. That it was, oh, what we're actually going to do is we're going to build a build graph. And uh, as we started building more of Tilt, we realized actually Kubernetes isn't a build graph, right? Kubernetes is a reconciler. Um, Kubernetes is a control loop that like is uh, constantly trying to bring uh, the desired state into line with the actual state. And that actually Tilt shouldn't be a build graph at all. Tilt should be a reconciler. Tilt should be a control loop. So we said, okay, well. How do we move this thing from a build graph to a control loop, but without having to like build all our own control loop infrastructure? And at this time, it turns out that a lot of people in the Kubernetes community were also really interested in this problem. And we're also being like, how can we take the basically the API server of Kubernetes and make it generally reusable as a framework for managing any kind of infrastructure? particularly Jason Tiberius and, and uh, some of the people working on the uh, KCP project. And so we said, oh, this is, this is all actually great work. This seems to be where the Kubernetes community in general is moving. Let's actually re-architect Tilt on top of the Kubernetes API server and rewrite every object, everything that Tilt does as an object in the same way that everything that Kubernetes does represent as an object with a, with a control loop around it. We are kind of, a, I would still maybe like 75% of the way through that in that if you want to write servers that query the Tilt API server, uh, if you run Tilt today locally, you're actually running a Kubernetes API server. When you run the Tilt CLI, you're actually running like a fork of Kubectl with some nice things on top of it. And you're interacting with the objects in your dev environment as you would if you were interacting with the objects in your Kubernetes cluster. Uh, we're about kind of seventy five percent through that. I think you can interact with a lot of like uh, the port forwards as objects, as the logs as objects, as the the Kubernetes like deploys as objects themselves. Uh, I think I have to move a, a couple of other things as objects. I think Docker images are now objects in that system that are just continuously rebuilding as they get changes. Live updates are, are objects in the system. So we want to have more and more objects and then be able to have people build in the same way that like 
kill, uh, Kubernetes is very pluggable and you can kind of build uh, things that react to those changes and like do metrics and report them to other servers and react to them and add new functionality. We want to kind of have that same ability in Tilt. So that's kind of Tilt as a platform. Um, maybe I actually, should, before I go into like features, maybe I should stop there for a second because that's a little bit galaxy-brained, but also I think pretty important to how we're going to manage infrastructure going forward. That is, that's actually like super cool. I had no idea that, I'm going to repeat back to make sure I understand. Like, like Tilt used to be like this open source project that you actually wrote and like the functionality still exists, but now instead of like a very kind of proprietary API and stuff like this back and forth, you're actually, the Tilt process is running the Kubernetes API server and the Tilt binary is like running a fork of kube control. So it's using more standardized protocols and also being able to like leverage what are the benefits of that do you get to like leverage like other things in that kubernetes api server that you would have had to build yourself otherwise yeah it just turned out that building a lot of the apis we kind of like scratched our heads and looked at this and said oh yeah building all these apis for managing objects both from an HTTP endpoint and from a CLI was just going to be a lot of work for a very small team. Like we're only, the company is eight people, right? We're not that big. Uh, so we said, okay, like, and when we started this in, you know, 2019, like, uh, or when we launched till in 2019, like the API server wasn't there that you could kind of do this. But I think I would say like maybe late 2020-ish, early 2021, like enough of the API server really got abstracted away. And like a lot of people put a lot of work into this. Controller runtime, uh, which is the, the framework for writing Kubernetes controllers, has gotten really, really good in the last year or so. If you haven't written Kubernetes controller recently, that library has just gotten much, much better. And so they said, oh, actually, these libraries are ready to use. We can use this for building our kind of dev environment management system. And so slowly have been kind of moving each part of like the old like graph-based engine onto this kind of new Kubernetes API server-based engine. Cool. There's a lot to think about there. So like that that's the first part, right? The, the tilt platform moving from like the graph-based to the, the the reconciler pattern. And then what was you said there was like the other the other side of the, the roadmap? <laughs> I mean, and then that's this kind of all internals. That that only matters if you're working on tilt or if you're like trying to hack new features into tilt, which is important. Like it is important for like how people debug tilt platform teams usually do need to debug tilt in some way. As far as like from like a kind of a feature roadmap, we really wanted to make it easy to be able to load all the services you need to use in tilt and kind of switch between them. So we've really kind of tried to make tilt more of a kind of a resource catalog. You know, we have teams who are using tilt with like 80 services or hundreds of services but don't necessarily need to run them all at once. And so trying to figure out what are the, like the right UI paradigms, what are the right like the flows that you need for like, oh, I want to run you know this set of services when I'm running on this feature and this set of services when I'm running on another feature and I want to spin up this service when I'm doing integration tests. Tilt is kind of a management platform for the services you need in dev is kind of one big piece of what we're working on. Kind of related to that, there is increasingly interest in how do you make Tilt work really well when different servers are running in different places? Uh, you know, whether it's running a local cluster or whether it's your dev services are running in multiple clusters, whether you have some services in Docker Compose and some services in Kubernetes. Uh, there's been a lot of really good work in the last couple of years into how to connect different Kubernetes clusters together and how to do network tunnels between your local machine and a remote cluster. 
you know, there's, a, there's obviously telepresence from DataWire um, who have really pioneered a lot of really cool approaches to this. There's a project called KTuttle, which is about creating kind of reverse proxies between a cluster and your local machine. Um, there's a bunch of projects around creating uh, uh, tunnels between Kubernetes clusters, trying to make all those things work well in dev. So it, you really can just at a flip of a button move a service from local to a remote cluster when you're a little bit overloaded. That is, I, th- I think, uh, we have a bunch of ideas around that and like how to make that easier and how to make that more seamless so you don't have to really care as much anymore which control plane you're kind of running on. And then kind of the last big bucket of features is this better support for IDEs. Like right now, Till has its own, you know, we strongly believe that like one of the one of the nice things about Kubernetes is it has like a very nice consistent API. And so you can expose it to a CLI or expose it in a web dashboard or expose it to an IDE. And we kind of feel the same way about Tilt that like it's going to be available in different forms from the CLI to the to its own, our own proprietary web UI versus in your IDE as like a VS Code extension or something like that. So we're kind of experimenting a lot with how it looks from an IDE standpoint and like different ways you kind of interact with that interface. So on that, like the IDE, it's not like going to, li- my IDE is not going to limit me from using Tilt today. It's just you're working to make it more native into some of the popular IDEs. Is that the direction? Exactly. Well, so Kind of shifting again, you know, you made Tilt open source, got a pretty good amount of traction. It seems like, you know, it's like good stars, good activity in the repo. You know, the premise of this podcast often is to talk about CNCF projects, sandbox, incubating, and graduated projects. We don't limit it specifically to that. Tilt's not a CNCF project right now. Have you ever had any conversations about that? And like, I'd just love to hear more about the thought process inside, you know, the company. I have not, or we have not really talked about CNCF or foundations in general. There's a whole space of kind of how open source is run and governed. We are certainly nowhere near an open governance model right now. It is, Tilt is very much run by a single company. With you know, We have partner teams who use it and who contribute to it and give us feedback and give us PRs, but uh, certainly we're not at the point yet where we've moved to an open governance model. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Actually, you know what the trade-offs are there. And before I would, I, I try not to opine too much on things I know don't know much about. Uh, so I'll leave it there. That's fair. It's not. It hasn't been like any kind of like. Has the the governance question come up from anybody who's been evaluating it, where they've kind of pushed back on the single company maintaining it and wished for more of like an open governance? Uh, not currently. Right. Uh, I don't think I don't think anyone's ever brought it up at this point. Cool. So, kind of the next step then in there is really just like the community. You know, it is an open source project. CNCF projects have like a kind of a little bit of a I don't really know. It's not really super prescriptive, but at least like a common pattern of how community engagement happens for different projects um, and what expectations are there. How do you like eight people is a pretty small organization to be maintaining a popular open source project, also engaging with the community, also building feature requests and bug reports and trying to like, you know, run a business. How do you like balance the community engagement and how, what efforts do you put into that as an organization? Um, one correction, we are, we are nine people nine. and uh, someone's going to be mad at me if I, they'll think I forgot them. Um, uh, as, okay. How, how do we handle engagement? Uh, I mean, I'm a pretty big believer that the way to build good dev tools is to have everyone uh, talking to users. And, you know, some people enjoy that more than others. We currently have a tilt Slack channel in the Kubernetes Slack community. And that's always been, I mean, we've always, and, and just in generally, we've always felt very connected to the Kubernetes community, both because the Kubernetes community is awesome, just 
the incredibly welcoming people and, and people who are kind of very supportive of kind of solving these sorts of problems. And aside just from the, from I think some of the technical things I really admire are Kubernetes. But I would say that like we try to have, always make sure that like, try to kind of bring that kind of sensibility of being welcoming and, and supportive to everyone who kind of tries to interact with the Tilt community, you know, making sure that like we do have a rotation we call of just like use as support people every week that like, hey, making sure that like they're kind of keeping track of the community and like making sure that people are, you know, getting their questions answered and that sort of thing. We do have a full-time uh, developer advocate who thinks much more like kind of at the high level about like how we build community and and uh, the structural things we should be doing to like meet people where they are. Though it's still, I still think this is all very early days, so to speak. So I'm a developer and I'm using Tilt and I really want feature X. Let's call it Tilt Attach. I want this Tilt Attach feature that I, I've talked to Nick about in the past. But I but I want to build a feature that I can attach my Tilt stuff to a running Kubernetes cluster. How can I actually contribute? Like, what's what's the best way for me to go help and contribute? Um, obviously, I can open a PR. Do you guys have have meetings? Is there anything like that, or, or what's the best way to contribute? So there is kind of a couple of different levels of contribution right now. One thing that we've tried to do in line with like Kubernetes CRDs, like we've tried to make it really easy to write tilt extensions and uh, to either kind of maintain your own repository of tilt extensions for your own team and then to contribute those to the, the common extensions repositories upstream. Uh, so we do have like a separate repo aside from tilt that is just like, Snippets of like, hey, this is how I register my server with Tilt. This is how I do uh, something new with Tilt that you couldn't do before. And uh, those like tend to be contributed by a lot of different people from a lot of different teams. There actually is a Tilt Attach extension, which I wrote one afternoon just as like an experiment. And it's it's good. It works. It should work pretty well. I don't think it has all the bells and whistles that you want, Benji, but it does exist. When uh, we have kind of more complicated feature requests, usually when something is built into Tilt Core, it's usually because it is complicated enough that either it's like a very simple thing, and sometimes kind of people just submit PRs for like, hey, they want to, you know, someone fixed a, like a coloring bug last week where those were showing the wrong colors, that sort of thing. Uh, but like for the more complicated features where like, hey, this is actually impossible to implement as an extension, they usually file an issue in the GitHub repo. And we actually often have like a pretty long discussion about like, I think this is always the kind of difficulty with any kind of like developer tool or infrastructure project is like, what is the right level of the solution? Is it a kind of API endpoint so that you can do this from your Tilt file, which is kind of how you configure the environment? Is it something built into Tilt? Like if it's, if it's built into Tilt, how opinionated does it need to be? How many parameters does it need to take? Those sorts of things. Does it need new configuration functions or should we just do something we do by default? Usually it tends to be a pretty involved discussion. We try to have those sorts of discussions on the, the public GitHub issue tracker. And sometimes we'll have like 10 different people file debugs in the issue tracker and we'll all say, oh, actually we can solve all these issues with one solution because they're all trying to like suggest different ways of solving this problem. And it's maybe you just need an API rather than a, a, you know, a baked in feature. And th- th- those discussions are always very tricky, but we, we try to have those sorts of discussions in the open. So, so GitHub is really the place to be. Yes, in, in and around GitHub PRs issues. Um, do you have any any meetings, weekly, monthly, quarterly meetings at all? Anything that you? 
We don't have any currently uh, meetings. We sometimes kind of run them ad hoc. Uh, we've run some office hours, okay, but nothing regularly scheduled. Okay, so so basically, you know, go to tilt.dev, check out the blog, keep an eye on the the GitHub repository, and, and that's the way to get involved in the project itself. Um, on that note, is there anything that the the Tilt open source project is, is looking for from uh, new use cases, engagement? Are any asked to the to the Cubelist audience? That is a good question. Actually, I think there's a lot of problems that Tilt needs to solve that we actually don't really want to be solving. I'll give you maybe some examples, like examples around like how controller runtime works or how client Go work, or you know the Kubernetes uh, project client Go work. A lot of the ways I think. We've talked a few times. There's a you know there's a bunch of other tools in this space. One of the things we collaborated a bunch on with a lot of the cluster operators. So one of the big problems that people had when they started using Tilt, uh, and I'm just going to give you this kind of an illustrative example. It's, it's a little bit hard to get. I can give you kind of a concrete case. Running a cluster locally with a registry was really a pain for a long time. And particularly the way it was a pain was that every cluster, whether it was Kind or it was Microkates or whether it was K3D or whether it was Minikube, all had their own ways of doing it. And then once you set it up, you had to configure all your tools to know where that registry lived. And it was like, okay, every there's a bunch of, on one side you have four different like little cluster solutions in this example, or five, uh, if you count the Docker desktop in there, and maybe six now you have Rancher desktop. And the other side, you have all these tools that need to know, this is where my cluster lives, this is where my registry lives. Like, why does every dev tool on the other side have to know about every cluster's way of configuring things on the other side? So we spent a lot of time working with uh, the Kubernetes community on like a standard way to like document in the Kubernetes cluster this is where the registry lives. Once we kind of set that up, it was like, oh, okay, like you bring up Tilt, Tilt can read where the registry lives off the cluster. And so we kind of coordinated with all those different teams to fit so that they all, you know, K3D and Kind and, and Microcase all did it the same way. And that really helped a lot, just made it way easier to set up Tilt, way, way easier to set up like a local Kubernetes dev environment. Um, I'm telling that story because like, I feel like there's a lot of things where there is just like, hey, how do you express like the live update rules in a Docker file? Uh, how do you express like ways to connect a Docker file to a Kubernetes manifest? Those sorts of things are actually things that like those sorts of kind of interrupt things are things that I wish the Kubernetes community kind of paid more attention to. Uh, not just like, hey, user, go figure out how to configure these things, but Kubernetes is a great system for like how to manage infra configuration. Can we come up with some standards for like standard ways that tools can configure each other and document their configuration for other tools to read. That's kind of from like as a Kubernetes community as a whole, I would love to see like more collaboration along those lines. And I, I know that's like very abstract and it's in some ways it's like kind of not technically interesting. Uh, it's more of like a human problem rather than a, a, a technical problem. But I do think that work is often the most high leverage work because you often, it means that people who are kind of new to the community are like trying to set up these dev environments for the first time or trying to set up Kubernetes for the first time don't have to think about how these tools fit together. Yeah, and you rely less than Tilt, you know, or, or other tools rely less on like having to have their own implementations of all these different things. Like going back to the example and the story that you talked about where these, you know, four or five, six, different dev clusters can identify where their registry is. Like 
It's a great story. I honestly, I didn't even know that feature existed in those right now. So like, that sounds like a, a great like thing. How, where does it store? I actually want to know. Oh, it's a config map. It's a config map in the, the Kube public namespace that just says, this is where the register is. That's, that's all it is. It's not that technically interesting, but getting everyone uh, on the same page uh, was a lot of fun and took a lot of talking to people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The best features are the ones you don't know about. The ones that are like, oh, I actually don't have to figure this out myself. Yeah, no, that's cool. Look, it sounds like you in particular, but Tilt as a company is very invested in cloud native. Um, and while you're not a CNCF project yet, maybe one day that's on the horizon, contributing to the, the greater ecosystem is, is something that you guys are doing and, and can be helpful for, for Tilt itself. And, and how does Tilt fit into that system? So that's really cool. I think we're, we're coming up on time. Uh, I did have a little question for you. Throughout the process the, of building out Tilt, is there anybody you want to call out, um, not to put you on the spot, but that, that has been really helpful uh, in the community or internally or anything like that? Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I just want to maybe thank all the Kubernetes projects that we build on. Like, we try to use so much of the Kubernetes ecosystem from, you know, from like the Kind project, which has been particularly helpful to kind of helping us like debug things to like the way, I mean, I know there's been just a ton of work to move Kubernetes from a mono repo to like individual repos that you could import individually and kind of use to kind of interact with Kubernetes. And that has been just an enormous help to us. So yeah, I mean, it's just a love letter to the Kubernetes community at large. All right, Nick, it's been like a really fun conversation talking about like how you actually view the dev environment and the changes from the build environment and what's created Tilt. It was great talking with y'all. Maybe I'll see you at the next KubeCon. That's all we have time for today. If you're the maintainer of a CNCF project and would like to be a guest on this show, head over to kubelist.com. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks and content on sales, marketing, product, and more for founders of developer tools companies. And this podcast is brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.